I am going live for the first time ever for the State of Mind radio podcast. And it is pretty amazing. It's been a long time coming. And I'm really excited to um, be sharing this airwave and this room with the wonderful people at Radio Regent. And um, here we go. So I'm a bit of a rookie, so please bear with me. And otherwise, um, I'm going to get right into it. So my name is Mike Stroh. I started something called Starts With Me, which is a mental health advocacy education and event business. And we do a lot of work with schools, in the workplace, with nonprofit organizations, and um, families and individuals. And our main purpose is to increase people's capacity for well-being. And what we are going to talk about on this show is, what is mental health? What is mental illness? What is recovery? What is well-being? What is addiction? And what do all these things mean? And what do they look like in people's lives? And I think that conversation doesn't have much depth to it in today's, um, I guess, hoopla around mental health and the importance of it. So that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to bring that to everybody uh, in a different way. And I hope that it is helpful. We will have a lot of guests um, from individuals who've gone through their own struggles to medical professionals, doctors, nurses, uh, social workers, occupational therapists, and et cetera, and also family members and parents. And we really are hoping to deepen the conversation to help people identify with others and hopefully through that identi identification um, seek hope, seek inspiration and possibly also resources and insights and help um, find a way through their struggles or share their joys, whatever the case may be. And the name State of Mind uh, is named after our annual festival, which is a culmination of all the work we do with the kids in high school and increasingly into the junior school grades. And we have over the years with teachers created curriculums. So we come in, do work in schools, and the students uh, get graded on it, which is really incredible. Then they submit that to the festival, and then they come and have a celebration uh, during Mental Health Awareness Week. And that's uh, we've had two thus far, and that's super-duper exciting. Another thing we're doing with Radio Regent, we are partnering with the youth-run Catch the Flavor Radio, which is also really cool. So all of the Starts With Me speakers are going to be supporting a portion of their weekly radio show discussing all things mental health, well-being, um, substance use, sexual behavior, uh, all the things that uh, young people are dealing with today. And so that is also Tuesday evening. Um, so if anybody has more interest in following the conversation with more of a youth lens, I suggest you check that out. So because it's the first time ever, I'm just going to go through our general um, outline presentation of what this looks like when we're presenting our work. Um, and since I am all by my lonesome, I won't have a guest today, but I'll tell you a little bit about my own story and then um, we'll probably be done. So the first thing we always say uh when presenting or when talking about mental health to an audience is until me personally, until I could understand that I really was the ultimately responsible for taking care of myself, um, I had no chance. And I often like 
to use the quote, or at least the quote attributed to Gandhi, be the change you wish to see in the world. I used to point the finger in every direction. You know, it's my parents' fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's the government's fault. It's capitalism's fault, whoever it is that I wanted to blame for my problems instead of, you know, having the opportunity to understand that really at the bottom of it all, it was up to me. And so that is an incredibly difficult lesson to learn. And if I didn't have a tremendous amount of support to help me learn it, then I wouldn't be sitting here today. So there's a balance between, you know, people being responsible um, and taking agency over their lives and the need for people to help them along to do that. And now over the years, um, I think personally I am and also the sort of crew that's developing around starts with me. Um, I think we're in a position to start doing that and that's really exciting and that's what we're um, out here to do. So be the change you wish to see in the world. Uh, it's a good place to start rather than expecting ooh, other people to do it for you. Okay. Um, so I guess outside of this radio booth, um, we work with both the school boards in the city. Um, we, as individuals, do a lot of work at CAMH for a high school program called Beyond the Cuckoo's Nest, which was the foundational program, and I always bug them about it, but probably in the world, certainly I would say in Canada, 30 years ago, nurses and clinicians uh, partnered with clients to help reduce stigma in high schools. And 30 years later, uh, wonderful, still a wonderful program, still, you know, they see, gosh, probably a few thousand kids a year and share the message. It's really awesome. So beyond that, we've worked with the Schizophrenia Society of Ontario, St. Michael's Hospital, Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, the Mood Disorders Association, the Mental Health Commission of Canada, um, as a, you know, collectively, uh, we do a lot of, uh, stuff now in the corporate world, which is super exciting. And, um, we are just on the tip of doing, a, an a really amazing, um, workshop or training with some city of Toronto staff who work with young people. And that is also incredibly exciting. And, um, it's a it's another sign that collectively we are understanding how important this stuff is and we're trying to figure out the best way to go about helping people learn about it. So again, it kind of goes back to I'm in a, an interesting position. I'm a, I have personal experience. I have family experience. I'm also a parent. Um, I'm you know, engaged with the schools as a parent, as, I guess, an advocate and educator. I sort of come at this from lots of different angles, and so sometimes I have to remember what hat I'm wearing and what perspective I'm trying to advocate for. But primarily, um, I always advocate for either people taking it upon themselves to help themselves first so that they can help others and then using that strength to help other people do the same. Um, and if we look at globally, okay, the World Health Organization says depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. Depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide, and that is hard to believe. Knowing that, and also knowing how, I guess you would say, um, unbalanced uh, wealth and security and access to resources and all that thing is across the world, um, it's hard to grasp that, you know, in certain areas of the world, no doubt 
particularly uh, in places that are experiencing war or um, environment like serious environmental degradation or lack of food and etc the rates are higher but generally it doesn't matter where you live the rates of depression are pretty consistent across the world and that is astounding to me so i do think for the most part you know people doctors the medical system academics you know everybody is doing the best they can with what they have. And that is something that I often have to remind myself of when I get caught in those patterns of second-guessing or wondering how and why and all this stuff. Why is it happening? Why aren't things getting better? Um, But if you stop and think, things actually are getting a lot better. Um, And the mental health system seems to be changing and a lot of that's because of wonderful advocates and wonderful people out there working their butts off to make it happen a big word you'll often hear in the mental health space is stigma stigma is sort of the big you know i don't know what what it is the the boogie word for mental health and to me well first of first of all stigma is just another word for discrimination basically and in a mental health context that means, you know, prejudice or treating people with mental illnesses differently than you would treat a quote-unquote normal person. I think the stigma discussion um, could be a little more thorough and a little more um, have a depth to it that's not currently happening. So how I would add to that is here's how I see stigma play out. And this you know replace the word stigma with prejudice, discrimination, whatever it is. But in terms of mental health or mental illness, you see somebody on the street who is behaving in a way, maybe it's not on the street, maybe it's in your family in the school whatever. You see them behaving in a certain way. You don't like how they are behaving. So instantly, your mind creates a judgment about them. And in this case, usually it's bad. Other person, bad. I don't like it. So then the next stage of that is you make more judgments or kind of you create ideas about what that person is, why you don't like them, what makes you better than them, or what makes you need to move away from them. And so you start to create a story in your head that creates a separation between you and them. Then you can justify putting them down. You can justify, you know, possibly a negative way of treating them. And then you just go on with your life. And that's kind of how stigma plays out in the mental health context. And, you know, one thing that doesn't enter the conversation is our brains have evolved to label people. That's what our brains do, or that's one of the jobs. Our brains are constantly thinking nonstop all day long, thoughts, 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 judgments, interpretations. We're judging the world. We're doing all those things nonstop. So it's actually quite normal to have judgment. Um, And I, I don't, I'll talk about it more later, but I don't like this idea of don't be judgmental. Your brain's job is to be judgmental. So I like to say, when you notice yourself being judgmental, that's where you have the choice. Or that's where you have the opportunity to then take different actions or say different words or you know whatever it is. And that's how we create a better world. That's how we become more compassionate. It's not about telling each other what to do. So back to the stigma. We're, we're judging this person. We're creating stories in our head. We're separating them from us. And then we put them down. And what that does is it makes us feel better about ourselves. And what's really going on is that we see someone behaving in a way and our evolved animal brain says that is dangerous. And we put up the defenses. And then we go on with our life. 
And that's a very normal thing to happen for the brain. And so when, as we sort of evolve or as, you know, depending on how you look at it, as we become more thoughtful and compassionate and et cetera in this world, and as our prefrontal cortex, uh, the front part of our brain or the higher thinking part of our brain develops and evolves, the hope is that we can behave in more compassionate ways. So when we are, we see these people or we see someone who does something that we don't like and it scares us, the more evolved part of our brain, which is called the prefrontal cortex, shuts down and our animal instincts take over. And we can't be compassionate and we can't be thoughtful and we can't be caring. So it's actually quite normal when people get into hostile situations or when they get angry or anxious or scared or whatever, that they behave in these ways. It's actually very normal and it, it's to be expected. So, oh my goodness gracious. I'm trying to film this on and I just screwed something up. Anyhow, so that's what happens. And that's my little spiel on stigma. So stigma is kind of the normal process of your unconscious brain. And when we become more conscious and become more self-aware, we can start to notice when we're being judgmental. And by doing that, then we can start to make different choices about how we're treating that person or whatever it is. So what starts to happen personally, at least for me, I'll get into my story a wee bit. Um, I'd say about around the age of 12 was when the first time I really started noticing that I felt different. I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. And I would, when I went to school or when I was around my friends, I would look at them and I would think to myself, wow, that person has something that I don't have. Or those people know something that I don't know. And what I thought they knew was how to feel okay. I thought they knew how to ask their teachers questions or how to speak up in class or how to, you know, just navigate the world in a way that made them feel okay. And I certainly didn't think that I knew how to do that. And I was so young and these conversations weren't happening. And so I thought, gee, um, I did have an older brother. And so generally when you have an older sibling, you potentially can be introduced to things sooner than other people. And I thought it was a brilliant idea to start uh, experimenting with drugs because I didn't know what else to do and I desperately wanted to know how to feel better. And I uh, experimented with marijuana. That didn't work the first time. So then I decided I'm going to try magic mushrooms. I don't even think I knew what the hell they were. But um, I basically had a drug-induced psychotic episode on magic mushrooms when I was 12 years old. And that paved the way for ha, the rest of my uh, days dealing with drug addiction and mental illness. And what happened at that time was I learned or sort of another one of my coping skills or learned behaviors was to lie. So for anybody out there who has kids or anyone who's familiar with kids, you know, when when kids learn to lie or that it's even possible to manipulate reality, it's actually quite an incredibly profound experience. It's like, oh my goodness, I can manipulate the universe. Wow. And then, you know, hopefully we learn that that's probably not the best thing to do. But for people in my situation, at least for me, I was so scared of getting in trouble. I was so scared of being honest and dealing with my problems that lying became a quick fix. It's almost as if it's an addiction. It offers instant relief, although you feel awkward while doing it, um, to get away from your problems or avoid facing consequences. So that's when I started to learn to lie as a coping skill. And throughout my journey, the person I lied to the most was certainly myself. Um, but that was kind of how I got through difficult times. And of course, you know, a 12, 13 year old kid um, to deal with my problems, 
I needed some revenue and, you know, I could only steal so much money from my mom without getting in trouble. I could only, you know, manage to do a little bit of part-time work. So I basically started selling drugs and I was then arrested and convicted of trafficking marijuana when I was 16. And again, got in trouble and just lied. I lied because I didn't know how to face my issues. And at the time, we didn't, you know, in fairness to the adults in the world, at that time at least, we didn't have these conversations. We didn't know how to deal with this stuff. Our approach was always, you're bad, you need to be punished, and you need to deal with the consequences of that. Now, I do think that that is important, but what is more important, especially with young people, is that we try to understand why they are behaving the way they are behaving. doesn't mean we condone their behavior. doesn't mean we let them off the hook, but if we don't understand why and if we don't help them try to understand why, then nothing gets better. No one gets anywhere, and we're still not great at that, and so that's part of... That's part of what we're trying to do is help people understand the why behind the behavior. And it kind of goes back to that stigma thing. You know, we see people behaving in a certain way. We don't like it. We push them aside. We create judgments. We create labels. And then we live out this story in our heads or in our thoughts that creates a separate other. And it allows us to dehumanize our relationship with them, and in which case we can't treat them in a way that is most helpful to them and to us and in the bigger picture to everybody. So after I got uh, convicted, I was still sort of selling drugs and in deep, deep darkness personally. Um, A lot of the people around me were in similar places And I started to, well, now looking back, basically the people I hung out with, the places that I went and the things that I did were pretty much entirely based on whether or not I could get and stay high. And that is a horrible, horrible way to live. Now, I primarily was high on marijuana, um, literally 24 hours a day from about 13 to 30 years old. And with the coming legislation, um, it's just interesting. I I am 100% in favor of legislation. I think it's definitely long overdue. I don't think marijuana is bad. Um, I just think for people like myself, (laughs) it was bad. And I uh, couldn't, you know, smoke it like a normal person. There's a funny joke. Some people say, if I could uh, smoke weed like a normal person, I'd smoke it every day. And so, anyhow, I just, I can't, I can't. And that's okay with me. I'm actually quite happy with the way I live my life today. And I did lots of other drugs, and I tried desperately to be an alcoholic. But uh, for some reason, you know, people differ in their substances of choice. Um, Alcohol made me sick all the time and I vomited and I prayed to the porcelain gods over and over that I would never do it again. And of course, you know, the next weekend, if I could stomach shoving it down my throat, I would drink it. And, you know, I did other drugs, but I do distinctly remember, and this is another sign of somebody who's likely um, has some substance use issues, at least in my case and in many other people I know, is that we we rationalize, justify, and minimize what we're doing. So my justification for being high 24 hours a day was, at least I'm not going to die. Because I know if I get high 24 hours a day on the other substances that I occasionally did, that I would probably die. And so that's a good example of really dysfunctional thinking. And that's how I kind of went about my merry way. Um, And any time that I would, that this sort of 
behavior or this addiction would get in the way of my life, I would rationalize it or minimize its negative effects. And I would always basically live in the future or I would live a lie that said, it's okay that I'm doing this because one day I'll be better or one day I'll get my life together or one day I'll do this or one day I'll do that. And it basically keeps you stuck in denial and a great acronym for denial is don't even notice I am lying. It's a beauty. So there I was in denial in a cloud of smoke. Um, I was asked to leave my first high school and I went to a second high school where um, if you showed up, you would pass. If you did a tiny bit of work, you'd probably get a C. And if you did a tiny bit more, you'd maybe get a C plus or a B. Um, And I lied my way through OAC. So I was one of the later grade 13 people squeezed into university. And um, that is sort of when more of my mental health or mental illness symptoms, if you will, started to influence my life. Um, I went to a university that was quite politically active uh, in Montreal, Concordia, and the 9-11 attacks happened And then I started obsessing about the world and politics and why everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And then my brother, my older brother, had his first psychotic episode and became, I guess, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So all these things are happening. My world is crashing in around me. And, uh, I guess this is maybe when other symptoms or diagnoses of mental illnesses started to become a big part of my life. So depression, anxiety, um, obsessive compulsive thinking and, you know, drug addiction, in my opinion, is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Although I should probably look in my DSM five, which is the book that psychiatrists use to diagnose people um, to see if that if they would agree. I don't know. Um, and I was really scared. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, my brother was quite ill at the time and it was really scary. And again, these conversations weren't happening. I had no coping skills. I didn't know what the hell to do. And I do remember going to my university counseling office, I guess it was. And this was my only, excuse me, this was my only experience ever with uh, a mental health professional, I guess, up until the day that it all ended for me. Um, And I remember going into his office and talking for a little while. And I sort of, to me, the problem was I had finally got a date with this girl that I had been, I guess, um, pursuing in my thoughts uh she was a lovely uh person and quite beautiful and i for the first time in my life uh couldn't get an erection and it just wasn't working and obviously that had a lot to do with the personal issues and family issues that were going on and to me though it had nothing to do with that i just didn't get it it's like why isn't this working this should be working. It's always worked. This is really annoying. And so the doc, I think he was a psychiatrist because he offered me medication, but you know, he said to me, you know, maybe something's going on. Maybe there are other issues happening in your life that are influencing your sexual performance or whatever. And I, you know, he mentioned uh, antidepressants and some other things and I just wasn't hearing it. And so this is another example of somebody who is not well, is that I thought my problems were that I couldn't get an erection and get with this girl. But really, my problems were deeply rooted mental illness and mental health and addiction problems. Um, And but I just couldn't see it. I couldn't accept it, whatnot. Um, I just sort of thought to the, you know, why isn't this guy just helping me get with this girl? I mean, that's what I want. I don't want to deal with my issues. And so literally I I basically just walked out of his office and I never sought support again until I, like I said, the very end. So another example of, 
You know, when we're in real distress or when we're in rough shape, it's so difficult for us to see things clearly, especially when you're high all the time. I mean, you're basically living in a mild form of drug-induced psychosis, a break from reality. You're kind of just in la-la land all the time, and you can't see things for, for how they really are. So off I went. You know, I managed to, at the end of it, sort of cheated my way through the end of university. Um, and then off I went into the world, uh, which I think was around the time that Radio Regent Park uh, started to become something. Um, and I sort of was caught in this weird place of trying to pursue interests in the world by just being shackled by my um, need to be high 24 hours a day because I couldn't stand one second in my skin um, without self-medicating through drugs. I was so uncomfortable. I don't, you know, it was just horrible. And so I couldn't really pursue anything because anything that got in the way of me getting high 24-7 had to go. And usually to pursue things of interest and that are meaningful, um, chances are being high all the time is not going to help, at least certainly for me. So so it was also a time that I started learning about my family history. So it is important to know um, about family history when, you know, for any health issue, okay? It's helpful to know so that when signs come up for you or somebody else in your family, you can say, oh, that might look like this. You know, if you have diabetes in your family, you know what to look out for. So my paternal grandfather died by suicide, and he had had a um, lobotomy. So back in the 50s, I think it was, you know, that was how they thought they could help people with mental illness. And evidently that didn't work, uh, and he took his life, you know, shortly after that, as far as I know. Timelines might be a little bit skewed. But then, and also my mom's side, she had seven sisters, and uh, my maternal grandfather, I think, had some alcohol issues, and I'm sure there were other mental health things going on. But so it's kind of in my blood, it's in my genes, it's in my uh, family. So that doesn't mean it's going to happen to you or your kids. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that you might want to be a little more aware of what's happening because um, that can can make a big difference. So, you know, at the same time, I'm trying to make my way through the world. And my brother's sort of still in and out of care. He would get apprehended by the police sometimes. And I would often have to go with my mom to the hospital or I'd go on my own to convince him to seek, you know, take care or get help. Um, if he was apprehended by the police, sometimes I'd have to go see him in jail and convince him to transfer the mental health courts and, you know, just total madness, absolute madness. Um, it was really rough. And I also lived with him for quite a while. And it's kind of, you know, just the definition of madness. Um, and again, on the surface, I could pretend things were okay. I would compare myself to my brother and say, well, at least I'm not like that. Um, all kinds of really dysfunctional, not good ways of looking at yourself or the world. And things did not get better. Um, but one thing that at this point did start to happen, which was, you know, a big turning point, I guess, for me is my brother and I, one of the few things we could do together was play cards. So we started playing cards. We started playing poker. This was sort of around the time of poker being whatever popular um, and we started to win. Uh, and then my brother said, we should put some money on the internet. And we did. And so fast forward five years or so, um, I had become a really good online poker player and I started to make pretty good amount of money. And I started to sort of travel around to poker tournaments and I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas and it kind of actually helped me quite a bit. I started to have some sense of self-worth, self-confidence. I thought, wow, I actually am not a pathetic human being, and I actually can do something with my life. Or if I put my 
focus and energy on something, then maybe I'll get somewhere. So, you know, it was kind of a weird contradiction because it allowed me to stay high all the time because I had money. It allowed me to lock myself in an apartment, basically, um, and not have to engage with the world, which is something I always really desperately wanted to do. Um, but it did allow me to sort of build up some sense of, you know, self-confidence. And I was pretty good. And I had friends that were really good and, you know, with their help and my own intense work ethic, I started to um, think that I didn't have to be a miserable drug addict anymore. And what fast forwarded that whole process was uh, I met a girl at a friend's wedding. And through that relationship, again, I sort of came face to face with denial. You know, I would behave in certain ways and she would say, what the hell are you doing? You said you were going to do one thing and you're doing the opposite. Um, And that kind of made me look a little bit more honestly at myself. And, you know, I'm a sensitive person for the most part. And all I ever wanted in life was to feel okay, just like everybody else. We want to feel okay. We want to know that we have community, that we have love, that we have you know, friendships and et cetera. And without that, we're pretty miserable. So I kind of thought, wow, if I don't change, um, I may not have those things. And because I was making money um, and on the surface, I could hold it together relatively well, um, <laughs> relatively, we thought it was a good idea to get married. And somehow we got married. And anyway, you know, fast forward not too long into the marriage Uh, it was clear that I was a real bloody disaster because now I had more responsibilities. Um, We had bought a house and my wife was trying to start a business. And so I was just swimming or drowning in responsibilities that I couldn't handle. And I started needing to get, it was just a bloody mess. So for the first time in my entire life, I asked for help. You know, I had had suicidal thoughts throughout my life. I had had, you know, moments of real fear and terror of what might happen to me and those started coming back and um, I knew that this was potentially my last chance um, or who knows so I I called somebody who I knew was similar to me and now he was a a drug addiction counselor Um, and he helped me it was quite amazing Um, so we got together and he brought his little checklist. He's like, we have to do a formal assessment. And so he's check, 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 check. Yeah, it uh, seems like you have a problem, Mike. Um, yeah, no kidding. So he said, call this number of a hospital. I checked myself into a an outpatient program at St. Joe's Hospital. And I'll never forget the conversation with this lady um, at the program, she said, Michael, you have to be sober for 72 hours before you come here. And I thought to myself, Jesus, 72 hours. I can't be sober for 72 minutes. And if I could, I would not be calling to get help. Um, but for whatever reason, that was the first time in my entire life, at least that I can remember, where that sack of bricks that I had been dragging around my whole life started to loosen. It was really just such an incredible sense of relief. And I had tried to stop so many times. I, God, I did everything that, you know, a lot of people describe in these environments of flushing it down the toilet, stashing it in the backyard, giving it to friends, you know, whatever it is. I'd done all that over and over for years and uh, it didn't work. So for some reason, this felt real. Um, and I gave this guy a really big hug and I was crying, um, intense sort of joy and relief and hope and whatnot. And that was sort of when it all began, um, to change, um, which was, geez, it's, uh, it on November 2nd, it will be seven years. And that's a pretty miraculous thing. Um, so I kind of, you know, I waved the white flag. Um, I decided to stop digging my own grave and off I went to get help. And 
early on in this process, I met this guy named Jeremy. And this guy, Jeremy, um, saved my life. He really did. Um, I owe pretty much almost everything uh, or a huge, incredible debt of gratitude to this guy. And he taught me how to start taking responsibility for myself. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. We have to teach people that they are ultimately responsible for themselves and how they engage with the world because that's the only place, in my opinion, that real substantial change happens. And when we change as individuals from the inside out, then the world around us changes. And that is something that people just can't seem to get. It's very difficult to understand that. But once you experience that truth, life will never be the same and you'll feel quite liberated and empowered. And so that's what we have to help people do, in my opinion. So this guy, Jeremy, you know, he held my hand. I, he was just, I, I, I owe everything to that guy. So I literally called him every day for a couple of years. I would have full on adult temper tantrums. I was just a bloody mess. I was a 13 year old kid in a 30 year old man's body. And, um, I had to learn how to be a human being. And I slowly, you know, I got on a wait list for government-covered psychotherapy, which took, I think it was about 18 months, or around 18 months, two years. I don't remember exactly. Um, I got a psychiatrist. I got a marriage counselor because, you know, people in my situation often have those issues. Um, and that was incredibly helpful. And I also found a... Um, mindfulness doctor. So I started to build what I like to call this sort of superhero squad. I have this superhero squad of people that have helped me tremendously along my journey. And because of that, I'm now able to help other people. I'm also currently studying a master's in counseling psychology, which is somewhat hard to fathom considering where I've been. And um, it's amazing. And so those are kind of the things, you know, I, the the main things that are, are most important to me are if I don't take care of myself first, then I'm of no use to anyone else. It's kind of the analogy of the airplane going down, you know? Put your air mask on first before you help your neighbor. Because if you can't breathe, then hell the hell you're going to help somebody else. Another thing that Jeremy drilled into my head early on for me was if you don't make taking care of yourself the most important thing you will ever do, then you'll lose everything else in your life. So that means if I put my job in front of taking care of myself or if I put my relationships or friendships, then I'll lose them because I won't be a human being that's worthy of those relationships. Or I'll be behaving in a way that I wouldn't expect anybody to want to have a relationship with me. So I took that super duper seriously. I had been in, in incredible suffering for way too long. And I really would have, I still to this day, do anything I possibly can to take care of myself. And um, that's kind of the message that I hope to pass on to other people and that I hope other people learn. So the, the foundations of that for me are number one, honesty if we can't be honest with ourselves, then we have no chance. So how can we help each other become more honest with ourselves? And again, it goes back to this. You have to embody the things that you expect other people to do. And that's what I, I think is lost a lot in this mental health conversation is that a lot of the advocacy or a lot of the conversation is on, you know, the system has to change and this has to change and that has to change. But nobody ever talks about they have to change. You have to look in the mirror and start there. Can't go and fix a broken system with the broken people that created it. So, you know, that's kind of a spin on, I think, a, at least a quote attributed to Einstein. You know, we can't fix today's problems with the same thinking that created them. So I don't necessarily align myself with this whole cry for more funding and this and that because it's sort of the way the system is structured and the way we as humans think and interact with each other that's the problem. So 
pouring money on a broken system is not going to help. So we got to change ourselves first. And by doing that, then the things that we create are thus different. And that all starts with honesty. And so if we can be honest, then we can have hope. You know, wow, I am changing. I am a different person through this practice of honesty. And I actually can believe that I have hope that things will be different and change. And that's pretty exciting. Hmm. I wonder what that could be like over the span of many years. You know, I love this quote from Tony Robbins. Um, People overestimate what they can do in one year and they underestimate what they can do in 10. That's a wonderful quote. So we got honesty, we got hope, and then we can start to build faith. So faith in this context personally means even though the practice of honesty and hope doesn't always bring me what I want it to bring me, and it doesn't mean the suffering goes away and life gets horrible and awful and just you kind of want to Ah, crawl out of your skin or whatever it is, you know, the suffering doesn't go away, but our ability to deal with it gets stronger. And so the faith kind of helps hold on to that or believe that that is the best way forward. Because going back to how we were in the past is not a good option, at least for me. So we got honesty, we got hope, we got faith. Then we can start to have courage. We think, oh my gosh, this is working. I can do something and I'm going to do it. And that courage is big. And for me, the courage meant looking in the mirror and emptying out that closet, emptying out that skeleton closet of all the past shame, all the past guilt, all the remorse, all the horrible things I had thought and done and experienced. It That has to get cleaned out. And that's another thing that I think the mental health system particularly the peer support world don't, you know, which I'm in many ways a part of, we don't hold each other accountable for these more serious, more deeply rooted methods of healing, um, which I think we need to be doing. Um, but anyhow, that's another conversation for another day. So we, d- we need that courage to face ourselves. You know, I guess as Carl Jung says, uh, what does he call it? Our shadow self or our dark side or I can't remember exactly what he calls it but we need to face that stuff and we need to learn to forgive ourselves which is another big thing um, and by doing that we start to build integrity right I'm I'm living my life according to these guidelines honesty hope faith and courage and by doing that I become an expression of integrity And that's an incredibly powerful thing for people to experience. At least I know it is for me. And it's not I'm better than you or I'm better this, I'm better than that. It's I'm living in accordance to these values because I know it's the best thing for me and I think that it's going to be helpful for other people. And by doing that practice and having guidance from people that are maybe more advanced in it than you are, you start to learn some humility. Humility is probably... That and gratitude are might just be some of the biggest things missing from, I don't know how to say it, Canadian society, maybe. Um, we have it so good. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there's all kinds of things we need to fix. Absolutely. But compared to history and just, you know, how things have been in the past, we have it pretty darn good. So let's show some bloody gratitude for that. And humility in my case means not thinking I have all the answers, you know, listening to people, shutting my mouth, taking advice, dealing with criticism, all those kind of things, you know. I really had to learn that lesson big time. So we got honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, humility, and maybe another one is willingness. I'm doing all these things, but the main reason they work is because I'm willing to continue doing them. And when things get hard, I have the willingness to keep going, to keep asking for help, to keep checking myself, to keep, you know, a self-reflective process of, oh, maybe I did make a mistake and maybe I'd better go freaking say sorry for that 
or whatever it is. And that sort of the next thing is responsibility. We got to get responsible for our behaviors and our actions. So start to take responsibility for things. I start to make amends, start to live in a way that embodies these principles and life continues to get better. Now, an apology is, I guess, saying sorry. But the difference between an apology and an amends is that an amends is living in a way that no longer makes it necessary to apologize. These are two really big things. And we don't have the time to talk about it now, but I will spend a lot of time talking about those things. So we got honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, responsibility, what do you got? Number nine on the list is practice. You got to practice these things every day. You got to live these things. They're not just nice words that come out of your mouth because that words don't mean bleep. Um, actions do. Okay. Actions speak louder than words. And the last thing for me is service, being of service to other human beings, being of service to the world, giving back from a world that I in some ways sucked from when I was not well. So that's where I am today. I do everything I possibly can to give back. I try to embody these principles in everything that I do. And nobody's perfect. I make mistakes all the time. I say things that aren't nice. I screw things up. Um, but that's okay. Because at the same time, I have this body of evidence that doesn't allow my itty-bitty, itty-committee of negative self-talk to get in my way because I know that I'm not like that anymore and I know that I'm now like this and if I live by these guidelines my life's going to be okay so that was me rambling on for quite a long time um, this is really exciting um, my time is kind of up although I don't have to shut her down right now I think I'm going to um, so yeah you know I'll be back again next week um I'll also be back tonight with the Catch the Flavor radio show. Um, you know, the thing is, if we can learn to practice some honesty with ourselves first, that's the first step. That's the first thing we need to do. And hope is there. You will be incredibly surprised by what might happen if you ask for help or if you start to be honest with yourself. Because the pain of not changing is way worse than the pain of changing and the, the discomfort of asking for help. So we'll be back again. Um, there'll be more info on the website about what we're trying to do here, but this was a good first test run. If anyone was listening, thank you so much. Um, with sincere gratitude, I sign out. And what I'm going to sign out with every time I hope to remember so I'm going to put my hand on my heart I'm going to take a nice deep breath and I'm going to say my state of mind starts with me peace out world till next time